Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Sheets, and today I'm very pleased to welcome Brandon, the mad scientist, to the show. Uh, Brandon, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, really excited to be here, and um, I'm really happy to be on this side of the interview for once. It, uh, it's going to be nice and relaxing rather than trying to be the interviewer and worrying about asking questions. So. Yeah, exactly. It is definitely more nerve-wracking to be on the interviewer side because you're trying to produce a quality product instead of just simply um, going with the flow and, and, and sharing your story. So hopefully it'll be fun for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Brandon uh, does record a he records a podcast, an occasional interview podcast mainly. At least those are the episodes that I've heard. And he writes a blog at Mad Scientist, just like uh, spelled just like it sounds. dot com. And uh, I highly encourage you go and check out uh, go and check out his writing and his show. Um, I've actually, Brandon, I, I just interviewed uh, uh, Paula from. Uh, affordanything.com and I had first heard her off of your show and went and enjoyed her her website because you had found her so thanks for that uh, connection there. Oh that's cool yeah Paula's great I'm actually hopefully going to be meeting her in October and look forward to talking to her again but uh, I'll look forward to hearing that podcast because yeah I had a great time speaking with her so. Cool. So just a little intro for people. Um, today's show, I'm hoping, Brandon has a number of good articles, and I'm going to walk through some of his articles, and I'm hoping that today's show winds up being fairly meaty. So don't, uh, we'll, we'll get to know him a little bit and find out a little bit about his story, but then we're going to walk through some of the strategies that he's using to pursue his financial goals. He's written some excellent articles. All those articles that we're going to reference will be in the show notes. I'd encourage you to go and look at some of the numbers and things in, in his writings. But it's very accessible. He's, he's explaining some detailed concepts in a very accessible way. And um, so I just encourage people, go and, go and read it. But don't expect today to be fluffy. We're going to try to give you some useful strategies that you can implement uh, immediately. So first off, though, Brandon, um, sorry for a generic question, but... Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your financial journey. Where did you start from? How long have you been interested in, in, in uh, financial independence? Where are you at in your progress uh, towards, towards your goals? Kind of just give us a little bit of background so we can understand who you are and where you're coming from. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm 31 years old. Uh, I studied computer science in college and uh, I actually studied abroad in Glasgow, Scotland uh, when I was a junior. Um, and when I was over there, I met a Scottish girl and uh, came back to the States for my senior year and graduated. And then I moved to Scotland. Um, so we spent about four years living over there. And then I brought her over to the States. And then we just got married last year. So um, after 10 years of being together, we just got married. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been married life's been good. We just, uh, just had our uh, one year anniversary there just a little bit ago last month so uh so yeah things are good with that and um yeah as far as when did I start my journey to financial independence um I've always been quite frugal um and I've always loved looking into money and like even as a kid like I I couldn't wait till I had a portfolio to manage and um have money to you know, do things with and watch it grow. And, um, so I've never been a big spender. So, um, but the actual journey itself to financial dependence, probably maybe three or four years ago, um, came across, uh, early retirement extreme, which is, uh, I just listened to your episode on his book review, which was excellent. Um, 
so yeah, I came across his blog and I, it was only then that I really thought, whoa, that, that's actually possible. Um, up until that point, like not spending a lot of money, I, I would take off like six months at a time in between jobs. I would, you know, quit, obviously moving between America and Scotland that gave perfect opportunities just to, to go do fun things in between those times. So, um, so I always used my money for freedom in that sense, but it was never a focused goal to, okay, I'm going to just work really hard for this time. And then I'll have freedom for the rest of my life. It was always like work a bit, have a bit of freedom, work a bit, have a bit of freedom. So it's really interesting how a lot of times, um, there has to be some kind of catalytic event, like reading uh, a story like Jacob's, or reading, uh, you know, reading something, or hearing somebody, or talking to somebody. Because, it, and this show is not designed to be the, you know, the early retirement or fin- early financial independence show. But I, I'm enjoying some of these conversations because, by realizing how quickly it is possible. Uh, um, Jacob's story is excellent. He gives a very good, um, detailed kind of defense that it is possible, and it, you don't have to be some uh, investment wizard to to accomplish that goal. But by realizing what's possible, I believe that p- all of us can look at our specific goals and understand what what's important to us with a much bigger realization of, I guess, the parameters that are possible. Not all of us are going to live pursue Jacob's lifestyle. I'm probably not going to pursue your your approach, but I learn from everyone's approach. So I think that that it's that's one of the goals I have for this podcast is to help people be exposed to stories and and uh, conversations with people who are doing it and seeing how they're doing it so that we can start with our own goals and say, what do we want and, and really feel confident about setting those plans. So it's neat that 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 you came that that was a, a, a transformative event in, in your life uh, as far as his writings. I'm sure that would make him feel good. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it completely changed everything. Um, it was, and yeah, as you said, like I, I definitely don't plan on living this style of life that Jacob does, but uh, I've, you know, he's shown me what's possible as far as, you know, just making choices that make you happy and rather, rather than just doing what everybody else seems to be doing. So um so yeah, I, I could have. I'm sure I could have continued doing what I was doing, and, and so far as you know, just working a few years and then going off and having a great time for a little while, and then working a few more. But um, I definitely like the new plan of just working really hard and then having the rest of my life to do it as I wish. So, <laughs> and the the working the working in breaks thing, I think, is a very valid strategy. It's actually a strategy that I'm more interested in than some of the other strategies. It, it makes sense to me to spend you know a number of years working at a project, then to spend some time working on a different project. And even with with the the more normal U.S. American career path, you know, all of us, I guess the the, the articles you read say that all of us are going to have multiple careers, multiple jobs, in totally different fields. And so that type of approach works well. Um, but I'll give you a, a, a quick bit of insight, and I don't think I'm betraying anything personal, it, but it kind of chuckled. Um, after I reviewed Jacob's book, I, re- I reached out to him via email. I shot him an email and asked him for an interview, and um, he was very kind. He said, uh, but but he made a comment in his in his um, note. He said, you know, I don't really think much about early retirement retirement anymore, <laughs> and his, he, he declined the interview for right now. I'm hoping in the future he'll do it. But he said, you know, at some point I may come back and start thinking about this stuff again. But I, I I'm not really active in the in thinking about it or planning for it. So I don't I don't think I'd be a, a, a good resource right now. 
And I had to laugh because for many people, uh, my belief is that by pursuing a strategy like his and a strategy like you're pursuing, it can set you free to kind of, instead of worrying about money and making all the decisions about money, then you can make decisions based upon what you're really interested in. And so Jacob, my understanding from his blog is he's currently working. Um, he's doing some sort of trading up in uh, up in Chicago, I think. But he's doing it because it's something that he's interested in, not because he has to. And I thought it's so interesting that once he's achieved financial independence at a, at a young age, um, he kind of just forgets about it. And instead of it becoming this huge monumental thing of I've got a plan for this, it's just simply life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, what a cool testament to... I would love it if if many young people would pursue a strategy like you're pursuing, and I believe that that free of some of the financial baggage and the concerns and the money troubles that a lot of people face, I think we would have a far more productive society of inventors and scientists and teachers and people sharing and, and helping society grow because they're in a position to pursue things that they're really interested in and passionate about instead of just pursuing things to earn the money that they need for this week. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, the fact that Jacob's gone back to work is just, you know, yeah, he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And I know he really hates that he called his blog early retirement extreme because <laughs> the retirement word has so much baggage associated with it, um, which is why I definitely try to save financial independence as much as possible because I, I have a whole list of jobs that I'm looking forward to uh, pursuing after financial independence. It's just, just, I, I, I'm sure I could do it now and I'd, I'd still be living a happy, happy life. But I think there's something about getting a degree in something and then feeling that you need to, you know, maximize, you know, that investment of time and money. So it's like, all right, well, if I use my degree to then achieve financial independence, then I can go do all these other fun things that, yeah, I'll get paid for, but really I'll be going there just to, to learn something new or meet new people or have new experiences. Um, and, the, and that to me is the, the the best part of financial independence is, yeah, the, the option to do that. Like I have no uh, desire to just, you know, sit and watch TV all day. I, I, I expect I'll probably be even busier after financial independence than I am now, but it'll just be on things that are very important to me and things that keep keep my brain occupied and happy so yeah absolutely so talk, walk us through and this is going to be a little bit personal but since you wrote it and published it in uh in public I, mean, I don't feel bad about asking you through it um you sat down at some point over the last couple of years and really spent some time trying to envision and create your your perfect life as you put it um walk us through kind of what that looks like for you and i'm sure it'll change so don't feel like you're lumped into a corner here but walk us through the process of how you sat down first and, and, and started working on it, and then kind of what you think of with you and your wife, what, what what feels like and looks like the perfect life for you guys. Sure, yeah. No, this this was a really, really good exercise, and I definitely encourage anyone to do it. And it's actually a lot harder than it sounds. Like, you, you, think, you, you think you know what you want, but when you really sit down and try to picture, you know, three months of something that's the same and doing the same thing, you know, it's like, the the stuff you thought you wanted to be doing may not actually be the stuff you actually want to be doing. So uh, it was definitely a really cool exercise. And yeah, it, it sort of sort of came from it, it was just a natural progression. I think once I knew that okay, freedom freedom's the number one thing. That's that's what I'm working towards. Um, you know, just 
saving up the money and then I'll have the freedom to do whatever I want. But then it's like, all right, well, what do, what do I actually want to do? And, and if, if work factors into that, then why not account for that and start my perfect life sooner? And you know what I mean? So rather than think, all right, I just got to save up X amount of dollars so that I can spend Y amount every year. Well, if I'm going to be, you know, working part time doing something that I enjoy, I should probably try to factor that money in. So, so yeah, for a good few months, we, uh, we just kept talking, uh, my wife and I just, you know, talking about different sorts of plans and what's really important to us. So, um, so yeah, to sum up where we are right now, um, we realize that, you know, like the things that make us happiest are being around people that we love and doing and trying new things that are challenging. So, um, since her family's in Scotland, my family's in America, we're never going to be able to live somewhere where both of us are completely happy <laughs> as far as being able to see it, all the people that we want to see. So, so we just, we thought, all right, well, let's, let's think about this. Um, we can spend, you know, a few months here and there if we need to, uh, we're, we're going to have the flexibility to do that. So, so yeah, we, we came up with what we call the three, six, three plan, which, uh, means that we're going to spend three months, uh, in America, just traveling around, seeing my friends and family and, uh, staying with them and spending some good quality time with them. Uh, we're going to go spend six months in Scotland, um, to see my wife's family and our friends over there. And, uh, my wife will then work during that six months, which I'll come back to and talk about. Um, and then we'll spend three months somewhere else in the world. Um, you know, we'll establish a base somewhere in a region that we want to explore. Um, and then we'll, you know, try to live like locals as much as we can and, you know, just do little side trips outside of there and maybe try to learn some languages and uh, pick up new skills as when we're abroad. Um, so, so that's where we're, that's where we stand right now. And that's, uh, we're actually planning for that first year of the three, six, three plan. So, um, but yeah, let me, I'll come back to, uh, my wife working. Um, I, I write about this in a couple posts actually. Um, but the entire 10 plus years we've been together, we've had separate finances. Um, I've, obviously been pretty extreme in my savings rate, um, ever since we met and, it, uh, my wife hadn't been that extreme. Um, she's, she was, a quite a normal person before, uh, all these ideas started rubbing off on her, but, um, she, uh, so it always just worked best for us to have separate finances. Uh, cause then that way we're, we're both contributing equal amounts to the bills, but then I can go off and spe- uh, save the rest of mine and she could, you know, spend it or save it or whatever she wanted to do with it. So, so she's actually not going to be financially independent, which is why we are going to be living in Scotland for six months so she can work and see her family. Um, and she enjoys her work a lot more than I think I do. So she's not too sad about it. I'm not too sad about it because I love spending time in Scotland. And what type of field is, of work is, is she in? She's an optometrist, so okay. she'll be able to easily pick up. Uh, it's, they're they're called locums in Scotland, which is I guess just like you know, if uh, if a practice needs an extra optometrist for a week or a day or a weekend or something, they can just call these people that don't have um, you know permanent jobs somewhere, and they can just come in and uh, sub in for a week or whatever. So. So that works out quite well. Yeah, that's really neat. 
and I'll, I want to riff off of that for a second mm-hmm. because did is she currently working a full time practice where like it's her practice or is she's currently doing some sort of occasional uh, employment? She's working full time. It's not her practice, but she's working as an optometrist at uh, someone else's practice. But yeah, she's full time, um, and she will be uh, until we make our move abroad uh, at the end of next year. So. Okay. So you in, you mentioned uh, for both you and for her in in your article you've mentioned that you are uh, you're working towards being able to live off of your investment income, but you're also interested in building up sources of income that can allow you to not depend on your investment income so much. And I think and also even in just what you said about uh, about your wife's um, potential uh, income in the future of doing it part time, it's such a valuable strategy is that there are many ways, I think, there are many ways to financial independence. One way, uh, which is maybe kind of the, the ultimate, is to be in, a, you know, be in a position where the income off of your investments will flow in and support your living expenses. That's awesome. Um, for young people, it's perhaps a little bit daunting. You can also set up a, a lifestyle that's a part-time or seasonal employment. So if this is, like you said, of six months a year working at a, something like that, if you develop the skills, you know, I've seen... Uh, I mean, what comes to mind right now is accountants um, mm-hmm. who work during tax season and take uh, and arrange their living expenses that they don't need to work year round. Uh, I think you're in, you know, software developers, people who can work anywhere, writers. There are so many careers that can be done on a seasonal basis if people seek that out. That's such an important strategy for people to understand what their skills are. And then um, it may be that the right move is to move into a corporate. 50 week a year position, or maybe the right move to take those skills and build something up uh, that's able to be done part time. Absolutely, and, and um, part time is actually something I'm going to be investigating. I think the more and more I think about it, the more and more it makes sense to maybe transition into financial de- independence that way. Because um, I know I, there's probably a lot of you know it's probably a big change, obviously, and there, there's probably a lot of weird emotions that go along with it it's mostly exciting but i'm sure it's going to be a little scary as well um and the the idea of working part-time really appeals to me um one for tax purposes just to you know maybe rather than just work a full year as your last year before financial independence maybe just work two half years um save a bunch of money on taxes and then you know, slowly work your way into a new lifestyle. That's not a, a big change, a, a drastic change from what you're doing. But um, but yeah, I completely agree. And, and especially in the internet age, there's so many more opportunities um, to to do pick up part time work or you know uh, even just work 20 hours a week doing something or whatever. Take half the year off. Uh, there's many many options, which is very very nice in this day and age. And you see people doing this at at every level of wealth scale. So you see people doing this that are um, maybe just getting started, whether it's your stereotypical surf bum. Um, I'll pick on surf bums because <laughs> I think they're neat people. But, I mean, you spend six months waiting tables so you can spend six months surfing. And you see it if you read the literature and, and talk to people who are very wealthy, who have you know very high-profile uh, high uh, corporate jobs, things like that. I mean, uh, most CEOs, if they retire from working a company – don't simply quit and stop working. Um, most CEOs have other projects that they do. I mean, I, for uh, I always enjoyed reading 
Um, Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric, he you know he writes columns for for I can't remember one of the Business Week magazines. He records uh, a podcast. Uh, he's active in, in consulting projects. A lot of times you'll have a CEO who will retire from a leadership position in a company and will that person will serve on boards. Mm-hmm. So they'll serve on you know the three or four boards where, the, where they're earning an income. And you find a lot of times that there's more to work than just money. Um, the money is obviously really valuable, but there's also some certain fulfillment. Uh, there's also a certain you know activity, feeling like contributing to society. And those things are very valid, but but many times people don't realize that it's available sooner than 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 later. It's not just something that you have to do from at six from 65 to 75. It's something that you can do from 30 to 40 if you want to. Um, and that's up to each individual's goals. So I think it's neat that, that you guys are factoring that into your planning. Absolutely. And, and what you said about work is, is definitely true. And that's why, you know, um, it's, it's actually amazing. It's something that I didn't expect out of pursuing financial independence. But as I get closer and closer to that goal, I'm, I'm enjoying my job a lot more and more because I'm not I don't I know I'm not going to be stuck in there doing the same thing for 30 years. And as I, you know, as I get closer to the end, I'm like, you know, I actually really do enjoy what I'm doing. Um, and especially, you know, now that I'm to a point where, you know, it'd be, it'd be fine if I just wanted to quit. Um, I don't, I don't get angry as much as all the annoying office stuff that goes on. Um, I just do my own thing and I, I still do good work, but it's like, I don't, I don't deal with all the bullshit that usually goes on, uh, just because I don't have to, if, if they want to fire me, they they can fire me. And uh, but it's sort of like that. Uh, what is it? Office space. Like as as that guy cared less and less. Like they liked him more and more. And that's that's honestly what I'm finding. It's like I'm not I'm not doing all the stuff that you know all the ass kissing that everybody else is doing and all the normal stuff. I'm just doing the work that I enjoy. Um, and yeah, my my bosses are <laughs> happier than they've ever been. So it's it's a it's a weird thing. It, it it's a very cool perk of you know getting close to financial independence because yeah I, i'm like i said I'm, I'm enjoying my job more than i have in a decade so <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um now you were talking about your wife and you said that she's not a scientist but <laughs> you also said that that maybe she's changing a little bit what are you finding as you guys spend more time together are you finding that that she's becoming attracted to your lifestyle more and more or, or is she, is she changing to that as what are you finding is kind of the path there? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's actually a very big surprise. Um, I, I have a post on my site, uh, called an unexpected guest post. And, um, you know, I was just up one night, I was writing a, writing an article, uh, and my wife said she was going to bed. So she just, you know, kissed me good night. And she's like, there's something on my computer that I want you to read. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, what is it? She's like, just read it. So she went off to bed, and you know, I tried to finish the article that I was writing, but uh, you know, curiosity quickly got the better of me because I was like, what could this possibly be? Um, so I read, and it, and it was just this, this this letter to me that was like just talking about her feelings, and I think she she said she got up in the middle of the night one night because she had so much on her mind, and she just started writing this, and I was sleeping, so she just. Uh, type this out on her computer and and yeah it was it was it was like I got to watch the light bulb go off in her head as far as you know why I'm doing this because 
we've been, like I said, we've been together for 10 plus years. And for that entire time, I've, I've been the same, like, you know, just, you know, watching my money very closely, um, not buying a lot of stuff, uh, you know, trying to save as much as possible. And she, like I said, she wasn't, she wasn't like that. So she didn't really understand it. Um, and we always had separate finances. So I never, you know, tried to force her to do anything that she didn't want to do. So, so we never really talked about it, but, um, you know, ever since I started writing on the mad scientist, um, she's my editor. So she gets to read all my articles before I post them just to try to snag any, uh, misspellings or anything like that. But, uh, so yeah, I guess it started to sink in and, and doing the podcast and interviewing other people that had, you know, pursued financial independence. Um, you know, she got to hear from other people besides me saying, this is why I'm doing it as well. And, um, we also got to meet up, uh, Jim Collins from JL Collins NH.com. Uh, I interviewed him for the podcast and he actually lives quite close. So we, you know, we met up with him and his wife and had some good dinner conversations about this stuff. And, um, so yeah, I think it just started to gradually click like, Oh, he, you know, he's not just doing it cause he's a cheapskate. He's doing it cause he wants to, you know, let his money grow and then use, you know, use the interest off the money to actually do what he wants without working. So, so yeah, it started to sink in, but it wasn't until we really started planning out our perfect life that she started realizing. Cause like I said before, she loves what she does. She loves working. So she, so to her, it was like, well, why shouldn't I, you know, buy something that I want because I'll make more money and I always like my job. So making more money is not a problem for me. So why not just spend it? Um, but when we started seeing that, look, this could actually give us, you know, six months for you of not working at all, spending more time with friends and family than we do now, seeing more places than we see now while still allowing to be an optometrist, then it, it really sunk in and, and yeah, now she's just totally behind this, the idea. Um, her, her spending has completely changed. Um, she wasn't like going crazy before, but she's definitely more, uh, conscious of what she's spending her money on and when. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been, that's, that's the, one of the biggest benefits of actually starting to write about this stuff was that, yeah, I think it really, got her on board and now we're, now we're in this together, which is great. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's neat that you can share that story because a lot of times when people talk about uh, financial planning and uh, they see many people see frugality and saving and investing as a sacrifice and they see it as a sacrifice of something that they want. And uh, I thought I enjoyed that. Where next we're going to go to your your triple value of income um, article because I thought that was a good way to talk about it. But I'll, I'll set you up for it. You, you know, I, I think the people who are many people who are frugal and many people who are pursuing strategies like you are don't view it as sacrifice, but they view it more as a way for them to get what they really want. And my philosophy personally is I think you know it's your. I just recorded a show on. Um, on uh, ultimate smart pervert, the ultimate smart person's guide to spending money, and <laughs> like how I started that show is is I said you know when is it okay for you to spend money? And my answer is whenever you want. Uh, it's your money; you can do what you want with it. Uh, and so there's I don't think there's anything necessarily better about saving it versus spending it 
but the key is that are you saving it because you want to save it or are you spending it because that's what's important to you? And my favorite uh, example that I've thought for years about was, um, and I've mentioned it a few times on the show, was Chris Gillibo's um, example of would I rather travel to 100 countries or would I rather drive an SUV? Right, yeah. And many, pe- many people you know, say, I would love to travel, I want to travel, but I can't afford to travel. But many people drive SUVs. And I believe many times no one's ever asked them, you know, have you considered that you actually want to drive the SUV? If you do, get the SUV. But do you want to visit 100 countries? If you do, here's a way that you could achieve it. So probably for you, um, I dare say that being frugal and saving and investing a large percentage of your income is not necessarily a sacrifice, but it's a way for you to achieve what's more important to you than the current gratification of, of, of spending money. Absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's a perfect way to say it. And, and Paula from Afford Anything, she has a really cool article on that. Um, I forget the name of it, but I'll send you a link afterwards. Uh, but yeah, it talks about like how all of her, when she said she was going to go travel for two years, all of her friends were like, how can you afford that? What are you talking about? What are you doing? Um, and yet all of her friends were going out and buying like a $30,000 SUV and nobody was saying to them, whoa, how can you afford that? What are you doing? How, how do you do that? <laughs> and it's just, it's just, yeah, there, there's all these things that society has just ingrained in our mind that are normal. But, um, but yeah, most people probably, they actually sat down and realized how much it was costing them and what it was, what they were giving up to do it. Um, they might think differently. And, and, and yeah, so it, it, you're absolutely right. It's not a sacrifice. Um, and actually the more and more that I cut back, like I started as frugal, but now, with the goal so close in sight, like I'm still dialing more and more back. And as I do, I'm, I'm, I'm getting happier and happier and I feel freer and, you know, less stress, less worries. And it, and it's got to the point where I'm thinking just rather than keep whittling down to, to reach the, you know, the, the sweet spot I, at this point, I may be better just giving up everything and then only picking up the things that I really miss. Um, and that may be, that may be more efficient to get to the sweet spot that way. Cause yeah, it's just, it really, it, it's not hard it, 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 with such a amazing goal uh, and the finish line so close. It just, yeah, it's so easy not to go out and spend a bunch of money on stuff. That's not important to me. Um, and, and you mentioned the triple value of income article. That's, uh, that's actually where it all started pretty much. Um, Cause uh, yeah, my mom, I was speaking to her one day and, we, I don't know, something came up and I said I wasn't going to spend any money on it or something. She's like, why don't you just go out and buy something to make yourself happy? And I thought a lot about it and I'm like, you know, it, it, that would not make me happy. Um, and I, I wanted to figure out a way to explain it. And so I started thinking and I'm like, yeah, it, you know, if I spend the dollar, then it's gone. And I have this thing that, you know, I probably am not going to be that into in a few weeks. And it's like, or if I keep the dollar, that dollar is going to actually be worth X amount when I actually spend it, depending on if I put it into a retirement account or if I put it into, you know, a normal investment account. Um, so yeah, I wrote the, the triple value of income post to show that, you know, let's, if I forget the numbers I use, but say you make a hundred thousand a year, that hundred thousand is actually only worth 80,000 to you because, you have to pay, you know, 20,000 in tax. 
But if you instead, you know, funnel a lot of that into tax advantage accounts, then you're getting the full value of your dollar plus all of the interest um, that you would accrue while it's in those accounts. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seemed like a really good way to explain uh, why I don't feel like I need to spend money because I'm I'm just delaying my gratification for more gratification later um, for the for those same dollars. Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because I think once you find people, if you find people who really enjoy saving and investing and, and building their money, a lot of times it's what it's their hobby. It's something that they, they they derive a lot of just benefit out of, and the benefit is either the fun of it or the benefit is what it can get them in the in the future. Um, I want to walk through because I really enjoyed that post. Walk through some of the specifics of of how you and I'm not sure uh, if you can pull it up on your screen. If not, I can read it to you. Walk through um, the numbers that you use uh, regarding spending, investing, retirement contributions, an employer match, and investment income, and how that multiplied. Because this is a this is a really valuable concept for me. I think of it as like stacking functions, which is a, a permaculture concept. Um, stacking as many functions as possible and getting maximum use out of the dollar. So walk us through your actual numbers that you used in that post. Sure, sure. Yeah, I got it up. I, I have it in front of me. So, um, so yeah, it was it was um, like I obviously didn't take into like the time value of money or anything like that. It was more just an exercise to to show you know how much value you could extract from. Um, I think yeah, I think it was a hundred k. Yep, it was a hundred thousand dollar salary. So. So yeah, as I, as I mentioned before, if you if you spend all of that hundred k, you're gonna at most probably get eighty thousand dollars of value out of it because um, of all the tax you're gonna have to pay. It's, it's probably even more than that. Um, that was just a just a you know, like a just a um, what am I trying to say? It was a rough estimate of the tax. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so just assuming that, so just assuming an effective tax rate of twenty percent. You're only going to be getting, you're only going to be able to buy eighty thousand dollars worth of stuff. Um, so then I thought, all right, well, let's let's go another direction. Um, if you instead invested one of those dollars that you earned, um, you'd still only be getting eighty cents of value out of it because you would pay tax on it. But then, assuming you left it grow for ten years, um, earning the seven percent average stock market real rate of return, that dollar would actually be $1.57 when you came to spend it. So, um, which would provide, oh yeah, and but you would then have to pay tax on that, uh, oh no, uh, the capital gains tax, so assuming capital gains tax. So you'd, you'd roughly have like 145 of value out of it. So, so instead of, so if you invested for 10 years rather than just spending it as soon as you make it, you're actually going to get a buck forty-five instead of eighty cents, which is quite a big difference, uh, especially for only ten years of you know waiting. Um, but you can actually do better than that. Um, there's lots of tax advantage accounts um, that you can utilize, um, which is something I like to focus on because that's a very easy and uh, surefire way of getting more bang for your buck. Um, so, so yeah, the next uh, the next section I talked about are retirement contributions. So if I instead took one of those dollars and rather than spending it and getting 80 cents of value or investing it and getting a buck 45 of value in 10 years, if I instead put it into my 401k, 
that then I'm initially still getting a dollar's worth of shares because I'm not paying tax on that dollar. And then again, assuming the same rate of return after 30 years, I would end up getting $6.70 worth of value out of that dollar. Um, so 80 cents as opposed to 670 is uh, a very big difference. I then talked about most people who work full-time have an employer match for their 401k. So for, you know, the first 5% or whatever gets um, matched by the employer. So, so if I, if I had that, that initial dollar, I wouldn't get taxed on it. My employer would match me. So that would turn into $2 right off the bat. And then if uh, I invested it, until standard retirement age in 30 years, it would be 1339. Um, so uh, let's see, and then investment income. So yeah, so that initial 80 cents that I could have just spent and then been bored with whatever I bought, I instead can put that in my 401k and then get 1339 of value uh, from that single dollar. But I'm not going to need 1339 for that dollar probably by the time I'm 65 or 59 and a half or whatever, whenever I decide to take it out. Um, so I could instead live off the interest from that dollar. So um, I worked it out, assuming a 3.5% yield, I could get 80 cents every two years. I think uh, from, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think that was it. Mm -hmm. 80 cents every two years. Yeah. So every two years I would be getting, the same amount of value out of that dollar as I would have got if I would have just spent it and then lost it forever uh, back when I earned it. Um, so adding all of this stuff up, um, using all of the various contribution limits at the time, um, the contribution limits have actually increased. So this was, I think, 2012, maybe I wrote this. Um, so yeah, totaling all of that up, if you maxed out all of your 401ks, your um, IRAs, your HSAs, um, and then you only spent, um, uh, what did I say, 25000 a year and then invested the rest in taxable accounts, you'd end up getting over $249,000 of value, as I've described it, um, out of that $100,000 salary that had you spent it all, you would only get $80,000 of value. So you've given yourself uh, three times as much uh, salary without having any more work to do or, you know, um, working more hours or doing anything else differently um, just by intelligently making sure those dollars are actually going to work for you over the long run. Yeah. And this is, I'm going to add to, to this with kind of a philosophy that I think is important because what I like about this is you said you're 31. This is so important. I, I, I feel this is so important when, you know, we're 30 years old. It's a little different if you're later in life. And so but the reason why this is so important is that money has a much greater utility at a younger age than, than at, a, at an older age. My favorite, my favorite um, uh, name for this, I'm going to borrow from Joshua Kennan, who calls it the red ring problem. Um, and the red ring problem is getting, too ri getting rich too late in life. I'll link to an article that he wrote on this in the show notes so people can read his article. But it, red ring comes from uh, a video game. And the idea is that in the, basically near the end of the video game, you can find this, this, this red ring that increases your ability hugely and makes the game extremely easy. And so life is, is, is kind of like, like that. So the red ring problem is what's the point of saving money or investing money if I'm only going to get to enjoy it when I'm too old to care? 
So this is so valuable at an early age um, to do these types of, of, of um, hacks or whatever you want to call them, uh, optimization strategies. At an older age, it's going to change. So the value of, of your dollar at 30 years old, where you can turn the, the $100,000 into a value of $249,000, is crucial to building wealth in the early age. It's going to be different if you were 70 years old. Well, now you're going to change your, you know, the 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 $100,000 at 70 is probably more useful uh, for for rational expenses rather than the $249,000 at the age of 110. Right. But you can't. But you can't ignore the concept at 30. Otherwise, you never get to enjoy that higher those those higher dollars. Absolutely. Yep. Very very important. Um, so yeah, the earlier that you start, the easier it is. Um, uh, that's that's definitely the case. Yeah. And there's uh you know there's 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 no there's no right or wrong here. Uh, but I like the fact. I have a good friend of mine who's who's a little bit older, and it's it's interesting with your hundred thousand um, dollar example. Um, this good friend of mine, he's he's older, he's he's quite wealthy. Um, most people would consider him to be quite wealthy, but he has a a boating habit, and he really enjoys. Uh, I live down here in Florida. He lives in Florida as well. He really enjoys large, expensive boats. So he has a boating habit that costs him um, in excess of six figures a year. So it's a nice boat, and he enjoys it. So <laughs> with this in excess of six figures a year. He actually continues to work part time so that he can support that boating habit. <laughs> and to me, like the reason I'm bringing this up is because just to hammer home for the you know 83rd time, either one of these is fine. So at this stage in in, in your life, at 30 years old, the hundred thousand dollars for you is to get the triple value and to build it up in the future because that's more valuable. Mm -hmm. But for my friend who's in his his late 60s. For him, the hundred thousand dollars is far more better served, and he gets far more value out of it by spending it, you know, allowing him to enjoy a luxurious lifestyle on the water. Um, so, but but you got to do it in an intelligent way. And at a younger age, I think most folks, it's so valuable to understand the math between what you've laid out and understand how by working that math at thirty, it puts you in a position at forty and fifty and sixty and seventy where you're able to. You know, you're able to enjoy the the utility of that for a much enhanced lifestyle. Absolutely, and yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and yeah, your 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 friend with the boat, I've that's something I've been thinking about as well recently that I thought it would make an interesting article. Is I wonder, you know, you said so he I assume he owns his own boat. Yes, and he still spends 100k a year. Correct. Yeah, that's not the acquisition cost. Right. That's the that's the running cost per year. Right. Yeah. So. Like I, I don't know anything about renting boats, but I, I imagine you could probably rent a pretty amazing boat for 100k a year. Not, not obviously for the entire year, but whenever you wanted to use it, um, and and not have to deal with all the other garbage of keeping it and all of that stuff. And I, I imagine you could probably do it for less than 100k. But maybe you know, obviously, he wouldn't be able to just you know think, oh, I'm going to go on my boat right now and then go on it. So there's obviously trade-offs. But yeah, just a lot of a lot of people's very expensive hobbies and things like timeshares and things like that where you're only using it a bit um or like RVs and things like that it's like i wonder if they've thought about renting before just going ahead and buying and did the numbers as far as you could probably rent some pretty cool things um and then not get sick of them <laughs> yeah 
you're going to love my um, smart smart person's guide to spending money show because here here would be like a couple different ways that it could do it. I'm not a boating person, so I'm with you as far as I would rather usually rather rent stuff like that mm-hmm. um, because I uh, would enjoy it. Now it's 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 challenging to hit the boat again. I'm, I'm down here in South Florida. We're talking about you know a 45 foot type of of, of sport fishing boat. Um, the, to charter one of those, you can charter it and you can go out and you can charter it for the weekend. You can charter it. Um, and and you can do it and you can have a lot of fun on that. But you can also flip it around and for the right situation, you know, somebody with a boat like that, if somebody has a business, um, that boat can be an, a, a, an extension of their business, something that they use to entertain clients and something that they can use to, to entertain um, customers and, and, and clients. Uh, it could also be something where it's a business in and of itself. So you can buy the boat if you have the cash to buy the boat, and you can turn around and you can charter it out yourself. Well, because you're you're chartering it out yourself, number one is you can turn it from an expense into potentially an income, uh, or you can use it as a how do I put this appropriately? <laughs> you can use it as a a business which is designed to be profitable, but allows most of you some of your expenses to be Deductions. to be absorbed by the business side of the tax code. Absolutely. Uh, at some point in the future I'm going to I'm going to do a detailed show on on tax planning, but one of the most valuable things for people to do who are interested in luxuries is if you have a luxury that you enjoy and this is something that's important to you whether it's big boats or racing cars or something like that, one of the most beneficial things you can do is you can say how can I take my luxury and how can I turn it into a business? So if I enjoy operating a boat, it's very possible that I may enjoy operating the boat and being out on the water just as much if I have five paying clients on board with me versus me just simply being out there with um, with just myself or with you know three or four of my buddies. And by taking something like that and turning it from an expense over into a business and by running it in a business-like manner, following the tax rules very carefully, keeping good records – um, you can take and you can legitimately turn the expense into over on move it over onto a business return where you have basically a just like you would enjoy instead of spending your money in a taxable world you can take that 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 expenditure which would cost you eighty cents excuse me which would cost you a hundred cents if you were doing it in a taxable world to turn around and, and turn that expenditure into an eighty cent expenditure in the in the uh, in the business world. Um, and there's a lot that you can do with it. And if you keep good records, you can use your business assets and you can use them for both on the business side, but you can also get the personal enjoyment out of them as well. Um, That's a great, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely excited to listen to your uh, Smart Spending Money podcast because, yeah, that, that's an excellent strategy and um, that's an awesome way to yeah, have an expensive hobby. Yeah, and and it's there. The key is knowing what the rules are and knowing what you want. I personally have zero interest in ever pursuing that course of action because I don't enjoy boating that much. But for somebody who that's important to them and they want to do it, look for a way to do it intelligently and look for a way to stack these functions on uh, on top, where instead of and where instead of having something be a large expense, can you make it into um, you know can you make it into an income stream? Uh, so there's lots of, of, of things that can do that, that there's lots of ways that people can do that uh, and do it very intelligently. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we plan to do. Uh, travel is is our biggest passion. Uh, definitely. We, we don't have many hobbies, but we love to go and see new places and experience new things. So travel is 
probably my biggest expense of my 20s. Um, but yeah, we're, we're flipping that around and we're going to use it to come out further ahead than if we didn't travel. Because like I said, we're going to we're going to go and spend long, uh, like three months plus at these different places that we've always wanted to go and see. Um, but we're going to live like locals. So we're going to be able to get apartments rather than hotels. And the the flight cost will be minimal, um, not only because I've got quite good at travel hacking, but just because, you know, it's one flight over three to six months rather than most people take one flight over one or two weeks for their vacations. And that obviously jacks up the price of the trip. Um, and plus, there's just tons of cheap but very interesting places to live in the world that we're going to end up spending less money day to day living there than we would living in the States or in Scotland. So, so yeah, we're, uh, we're trying to turn our biggest passion, not into a business, but use it in a way that it will actually help us financially as well. Absolutely. So let me go to your article there on travel hacking, because this was a great article. Um, you, the trip that you recently did is you recently took a trip and you flew from Boston to Ireland and use some strategies, and I think the strategies will be a little too detailed for the air, but um, but in the article, you flew from Boston to Dublin, and then from Dublin to Glasgow, and you stayed over, you stayed a couple nights in a five-star London hotel, and your total out-of-pocket cost was how much? Uh, less than 150 each for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been, purchased at retail, would have been about 2000 bucks each, something like that? Uh, let's see, that would have been, uh, it would have been about, it would have been over a grand each, definitely. Um, a Boston to Dublin flight, usually, if you're lucky, you can get it maybe for seven, eight hundred. At the time when I booked it, um, I, you know, I, I record everything I do uh, just to see how much money I'm actually saving. So at the time, I think two of those tickets would have cost sixteen ninety two thirty eight. Um, um, so we ended up saving fourteen fifty by using miles. Um, uh, so yeah, that would have been, you know, over 1600 just for the flights from Boston to Dublin. Cause it was summertime. It's, you know, America to Europe. That's not a cheap, <laughs> cheap trip. Um, I then, yeah. And then from Dublin, we went to Glasgow cause that's where my wife's family is. Um, but my sister was studying abroad in London at the time. So we wanted to stop in London. So yeah, uh, a one-way ticket from Dublin to London and London to Glasgow, that would have, uh, been, you know, over 200 bucks each or close to 200 bucks each, I think. Um, and then, yeah, two nights in a five-star hotel right in Leicester Square. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Um, that, the actual cost of the room was 974 for two nights. Um, but we, uh, didn't pay anything. We used miles. I'm trying to see here. Oh yeah, I, I wrote on the post that we saved 240 because there's no way we would have spent 974 <laughs> to stay in a five-star hotel had we been paying. But yeah, the actual the actual cost of that room for two nights on that weekend that we were there was 974. So, um, so yeah, so the only thing we did pay was tax on the flights, um, and absolutely nothing on the hotel. So yeah, it was a uh, less than 150 each, and uh, it was an amazing trip and we, you know, it was cheap once we got there, obviously, cause we were just staying with my wife's family and, um, yeah, it was amazing. So, so yeah, travel hacking is, is one of those hobbies that you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, 
saves you money, but uh, it can be a hobby. It's actually a lot of fun, and uh, uh, there's there's lots to it, and could keep you occupied for a while. And it and there's nothing there's nothing better than waking up in a five star hotel and seeing all the people around you and thinking that they spent a fortune and you didn't spend a penny. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this article, I mean, the, the travel hacking using the credit cards and the miles and the points is something that it's a topic that fascinates me. Um, I am I am not actively doing it, um, but it fascinates me. I'll give you a book that uh, that I just finished uh, that you may, I don't know if you read or not, um, but it, but the, artic, the author of that book goes through some of his deals and how he did them. Uh, the book is called Get More, Spend Less, and the author, I think his name is Brad Wilson. He, he writes at bradsdeals.com. Have you heard of Have you heard of that book? No, I've not. Uh, it sounds interesting, though. Check it out. I think you would enjoy it. I think uh, I think you would enjoy it because it's he goes through some of his deals, and his deals are are like yours, incredible. And uh, he goes through some of his. He's pretty hardcore about it, very extreme. And um, you'll love his you'll love his story. And that's also I'll do a. Um, uh, a review on that book at some point here, nice. but also the recommendation for anybody listening that wants to to read a good book that that you, on your on your site you give some good resources to the Flyer Talk forums and to some some blogs that kind of teach about this. But it's definitely a good way to uh, to exploit the system a little bit right now. Oh, it's great, and and yeah, it's it's going to be very important to us because, like I said, once we get to these really cool places, it's going to be cheaper living there, but getting there could be expensive. Um, but using these travel hacking techniques and currently I'm just building up my balances big time in preparation for, you know, all the travel that I plan to do in the next, you know, whatever decade or so. Um, but yeah, using those to make the travel between these interesting places very cheap is, is just going to, you know, make the benefit of travel even greater for us, um, financially. So, uh, yeah, there's there's lots of great resources out there, and it is very addictive. Um, and it's very important to know how to to use your miles, um, just as much as it's important to know how to get the miles that you need. Um, I think using them is even more important because because even though I flew from Boston to Dublin for such a little bit of money and not a lot of miles, um, the, the way I did it is very unknown. Um, the way I used the miles and the way that I did, so you know, I spent less than half the amount of miles that normal people do when they try to book a America to Europe flight. And I paid probably a third or a fourth of the taxes that some people have to pay. Um, and so, yeah, it's just uh, following some good blogs and checking out flyer talk and uh, reading about it. And you can really just extract some incredible amounts of value out of these things. So, and I also want to point out how these functions stack, like how this is, is, a part of, of the strategy. Many people um, discount flying on points because of blackout dates, because of when they can fly. Many people discount um, travel. But if one is financially independent and one has flexibility over their schedule, then number one, you can fly either at the cheapest time. So you can take those Wednesday flights or the Saturday afternoon flights that are just simply inexpensive. You can fly at the seasons when a lot of people can't can't fly. So so you can avoid the summer season when everyone's out of school, but you can go on the shoulder season between the the the, the high season and the low season, and you can get really really great values. Or you can pursue some of the you know you can take the award tickets on the va on the dates that they're available, um, and so you can be flexible on that, and you can afford to slow down. 
So like you said, one of the major expenses of traveling, when most people think about traveling, they think about, oh, I've got this, this two-week vacation that I have to take. And um, you call it slow travel, but if you have this two-week vacation, and let's say you're going to take a two-week vacation to Europe, well, let's, let's say you pay, pay retail and you got a 1000 bucks each for a plane ticket. And then because you're there for two weeks, you have to do this, you know, you have to pack everything in every single day. You've got to have rental cars while you're there. You've got to stay in hotels while you're there. You can't take a, a one-month apartment um, rental instead of staying in a hotel. You can't slow down enough to use public transportation instead of having your own car. Because of the time pressure of, of, of being fixed on this, you know, work 50 weeks a year schedule, you wind up spending, you know, I don't know, seven $8,000 on a, on a two-week vacation to Europe, where if you are financially independent and you can slow down, you can take that exact same amount of money and stretch it out over a couple of months uh, by just because of your flexibility. So the functions stack on top of each other. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, um, yeah, you're not cooking for yourself. You're not doing. You're not doing any. You're just you know spending money just as fast as you can, pretty much, just to have a good time. And you will have a good time. But as you said, like seven or eight grand, that's that could easily sustain somebody for an amazing year in you know Central America or Southeast Asia. Or, South America, um, that could, that could be a whole year of, uh, you know, learning Spanish and, you know, learning how to cook and go into the local markets and things that make travel really special, um, that just don't cost a lot of money to do. And yeah, you could take, uh, I, I know I could, I know I could live for a year on some of the budgets people have on, uh, their one week, two week vacations here in the States. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, this is unique. I think this is a, a U.S. American concept that, that in our culture is not so well understood. When I was in college, I lived in Costa Rica, and I did a uh, research project with a business school that I was studying at. I did a research project for a Costa Rican ecotourism company, and we prepared a, a report on uh, American tourists, British tourists, and German tourists. And it's very clear when you look at it that as Americans, we, we come to, we would go to Costa Rica for a one week vacation and we would want everything carefully programmed in that one week, <laughs> in that one week. So every single day from morning to night, there are activities and we don't have a lot of time. So we're willing to spend a significant amount of money um, on those, on those trips. So, and we would want everything planned out in advance of the trip. So when we go up, we know when we show up, we know what our itinerary is. Every moment of every day is scheduled and and we've got it all kind of planned out. The British tourists would come, they would want their itinerary planned out, but they would usually come for about a month instead of a week. Uh, so they would they would stretch the time out longer and they wouldn't want everything planned out every day. They would want to make sure that they had some downtime um, to to figure it out. And I'm I'm using uh, generalizations to to make my point, but these are pretty accurate. The German tourists would show up at the airport without a single plan, without a single booking, but they would be there for two months, and they would get to the country, they would get to Costa Rica, then they, once they were there, they would figure out what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, and they would spend half the money that the Americans spent in a week, you know, <laughs> over a two-month vacation while they were there. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a dramatic cultural difference between the, uh, between the cultures. But yeah, the, it's the adventure and the not knowing and the uncertainty that makes travel so rewarding when you look back on it. Like, uh, yeah, my wife and I lived in China for three months and obviously didn't learn too much Mandarin in that time. And, but we would just hop on a local bus, try to find our way to some very remote, weird, uh, you know, small little village in, in China. And it would be, you know, we wouldn't know 
exactly when the bus was coming back, if it was coming back. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just fun. It's the adventure. That's what makes it, if you want to, yeah, if you want to have just normal life, um, eating the same things you eat and doing the same things you do at home, then save a lot of money and just go, go, uh, go to the next town over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want to summarize one of your articles here. I want to encourage people to, to check it out. And then I want to talk about three specific, um, techniques, planning techniques that you're using that I think are valuable for people to understand. Um, number one is, well, before the three techniques, you have an article called The Shortest Path to Financial Independence. I encourage listeners to go and read this article because I think it does a good job of laying out, if someone is interested in financial independence, what what they can do. And I'm going to summarize your article and I'm going to add a few of my own mm-hmm. um, kind of like ideas. Number one, list current essential expenses. So write down what you're currently um, currently spending. Number two, predict your future essential expenses. And what's interesting is that you currently, on your expenses that you list on your blog, it looks like you're currently spending, looks like about $1,200 a month. And this is for your 50, uh, 50% of your expenses. Um, That's correct, yeah. So my wife and I spend, yeah, um, double that. And we split all of the essentials right down the middle. So we're just, we pay for everything jointly, uh, Everything that we use jointly, we pay for it equally. So yeah, perfect. So so you got that current number. Then you predict your future expenses. And so what you did was you said, hey, let me look at my lifestyle that fits my ideal future, my perfect my perfect life, and let me look accurately and try to see what would be an accurate um, assumption of what I would need. And the number you came up with was about six hundred eighty five dollars a month. Now that's that's uh, impossible for people to comprehend in the United States, but under your assumption of what you're doing with the techniques and the skills that you've developed, that's kind of your, your starting point. And the way that you got there is to figure out how to, to optimize each and every one of your um, expenditures. So change your housing, change your stuff, live in the right part of the world at the right time of life, adjust your transportation, kind of adjust all of your, all of your expenses. And so you give people that that formula, and by doing that, you can see that if somebody needed to cover, in your, using your numbers, your example, $685 a month for one person times two for two people, that's the type of thing that's either very doable for people who want to do it off of investment income or very doable off of uh, you know part-time income. Um, it, that's a, it's a really doable thing, but it's really tough if people don't go through that exercise and figure out what their perfect life is to imagine that it's possible at the early age that you're shooting for. Absolutely. And, and I just actually interviewed a really interesting couple um, who have been, they retired at 38 years of age in 1991. Um, and they've been, they, 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 they retired with half a million dollars between the two of them. So 250,000 each. And they have been going strong through, you know, the dot-com bust, the financial crisis, and they've been traveling around the world, just, you know, slow traveling, living in really interesting places. And they've been doing it for 22 plus years. And, uh, and yeah, they're still going strong. And he, the, they're a couple, uh, Billy and Akisha, and they, they write over at uh, retireearlylifestyle.com. And Billy had a really cool phrase that I'd, I had not heard before, but it, it fits perfectly. He's, he said the cost of working. So we all, we all hear about the cost of living, but the cost of working is actually very high for most Americans. So when you factor out the cost of working, it, you really probably don't spend as much money as you think you do. Um, you know, if you're not, if you're, 
you're taking out the cars that you don't need anymore. You're taking out the gas that you don't need to get, you know, your 30 mile commute to and from work. You're taking out all your, your business expenses. I mean, your um, business clothes expenses and um, all of, and then all of the things that you do on the weekend, just because you don't have the energy or time to actually, you know, go for a, a long bike ride or read a good book or things like that. Just, uh, you just, you know, go ahead and spend money because you got to have fun for the two days that you got in between work. And so when you factor all of that out and really think how are you going to live once you've achieved financial independence, there's really not a lot that it's going to take to make you happy. And, and yeah, the reason why I did this post is because for me, my strategy was, okay, save up enough so that all my essential expenses are covered. So that's when I'm going to feel that I'm financially independent when I know that I can keep contributing my 50% of all of our bills and never have to work again. So that's, that's me financially independent. I, I plan to work a bit more than that so I can, you know, do fun stuff that, you know, every once in a while, like if I want to go play a game of golf and things like that, uh, you know, I, I'd like to have some money to do some of that, but, um, but yeah, once you get just the amount of money that you need to, you know, live the life that you think that you're going to be living for uh, the foreseeable future after financial independence, then to me, that's that's when you're financially independent in my in my definition of it. And um, and like I said before, um, I do plan on potentially picking up work that I want to do, not because of money, but just for fun. And that's going to even make, you know, even make the amount I can spend even higher. Um, so. So, and I'll still be young and I could go back to work if I wanted to. Um, so yeah, a lot of people ask, well, what if you want to have kids? You didn't factor that in. And it's like, well, then I'll be able to just do the numbers and see, all right, do I want, you know, to go back to work for six months? Do I want to work part-time? Uh, you know, I'm not going to be 70 and unemployable or 80 and unemployable. Uh, so if I do want to make a big lifestyle, lifestyle change, then I can obviously just reassess. It's not, it's not you know, cut and dry. You can, once if you if you quit your job for ten years, there's there's always ways to make money after ten years, you know. Yeah, there there definitely are. It was it was funny. I was going to try to pick on you about the kids thing. I'm I'm actually going to skip it for right now. But it is a major. It is a major uh, thing that people have. Is well, what about kids? My wife and I are expecting a baby. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, and I'm pretty careful about tracking the actual costs of, of having a baby. But there are so many ways to optimize it in the U.S., and then there's so many ways of optimizing it out of the U.S. I've got a – sometime in the next couple of weeks, I've got an interview lined up with uh, a couple that has been retired since their early 30s, and they had their kids, but they went to Mexico to have them um, instead of uh, – um, instead of having them in the U.S. because they were, it was a substantially – substantially – Lower cost to have um, to have the kids. They they wound up um, having to have a C-section, which in the United States is you know twenty thousand bucks plus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Mexico with the C-section with the complicated delivery, all of their care, no insurance, paid out of pocket was three thousand bucks. That's amazing. So, <laughs> just by being flexible, by being able to move down to Mexico for a few months, they were able to to meet this thing that most people are scared of and to do it well within their budget. Yeah. I just read an article, um, uh, the Royal wedding, the, the new prince that was born. I, I think I read somewhere that it costs like less than 15,000 for all of the craziness that went around with, uh, the Royal wedding over there. And, um, 
and yeah, it would have been 30,000 plus at least over in the States or something. I didn't read the article. I just saw the headline, but I should probably take a look and see what the actual numbers were in that article. But yeah, something crazy like that. It's like the royal wedding. I mean, the royal uh, birth cost 15K, but a normal, you know, average Joe birth in the States, 30, 30 plus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. By the way, you're going to think that I'm stalking you and stealing all of your guests because they were um, Billy and uh, his wife, or uh, not Billy, the guys that you just mentioned from uh, early, from that that site were on my list of people to interview. So uh, you're going to think that <laughs> yeah, that's right. going your guest list interview. So don't be offended no, at no, that. No, it's, uh, like, I love hearing all their stories. So I'm sure you're going to be asking different stuff than I'm asking. But yeah, I was I was really excited to talk to them because um, there was actually a commenter named Prov Eight. Uh, I think it was maybe on the Perfect Life post or one of the posts where I talked about our our three six three plan. Um, he's like, oh, you should get these get these guys on the podcast because they're sounds like they're doing what you want to do. And then I I looked into it and I was like, these they're doing exactly what we're wanting to do. And the fact that they've been doing it for twenty two plus years is just so inspiring. And uh, you know, and they're still enjoying it because that's what I always wondered. I was like, I could see myself doing this for quite a while, but I was like, wonder if I'll get tired of it. And they've just They've just loved it. They they always thought they'd settle down somewhere, but they just keep finding new places they want to go and uh, traveling between them. And you know, like I said, they they had a half a million for both of them, and I think they I think they have more now than when they started. So it's uh, very very inspiring. So yeah, I'll I'll look forward to hearing them on your show as well. I got to reach out to him first, but at some point I will. So, all right, three strategies that you write articles about, and I want to go over these strategies because I think they're they're valid things, but a lot of times people don't um, understand kind of how how this can work. Mm-hmm. Number one is you talk about uh, traditional IRA versus Roth IRA, and at some point in the future I'll do a show where I go through the 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 details of the rules on each individual account um, as far as the traditional IRA and the Roth and all of the details of, of when you can take money out and the, and the contributions and the advantages and disadvantages of, of most people. Um, I'm going to summarize, though, in a, in a sense, most people uh, are, if you read popular financial literature, you'll generally find that most people will say that one should always choose to participate in a Roth IRA before participating in a traditional IRA. And again, there are lots of reasons to this, but I want to talk about just the taxes. So to explain for people, um, with a traditional IRA, you are able to make a contribution to that account prior to paying income taxes. The money grows with no taxes assessed on it year by year. And then upon distribution, the account is distributed without um, uh, with, excuse me, the account is distributed and that money is taxable income to you. So you pay the you pay the the tax on the back end. The advantages to a traditional IRA is purely focusing on the tax, not focusing on any of the other aspects of it, which I'll cover in a future show, is that when you earn a dollar, instead of investing 80 cents of that dollar because you pay 20 cents of tax, the full dollar goes into the account. And the idea is that potentially in the future, some people feel that um, if the tax rates hold constant and if you have a lower income in retirement, that you'll be paying taxes at a lower rate. The Roth IRA, um, the Roth IRA. If you earn a dollar, you go ahead and pay tax now, and then you invest the eighty cents. The money grows tax deferred, and when it comes out in retirement, the money comes out completely tax free. Now there are other advantages and disadvantages between the two accounts. 
Um, many people feel that the Roth IRA is a better uh, is a better approach, and usually the reasons that they'll feel that way is either because of the flexibility, because of some of the distributions that you can take, um, uh, the distributions that you can take now, or because of the well they they, they run the numbers and say well I've got all this tax free money. Most people don't realize that mathematically, if tax rates are constant, and if uh, so, if income tax rates are constant, and if your income is constant, math and if your investments return the same amount, if they're invested identically, you'll have the exact same amount of money from a traditional IRA versus a Roth IRA. So, if you invest ten thousand, uh, well, let's use five thousand dollars into the traditional IRA, and you do it pre-tax, it grows at a certain rate of return, and then you spend the tax dollars in retirement versus the Roth IRA you have the identical amount of money. They're mathematically identical. So you're basically playing with two variables. Number one, what income tax rates are, or number two, what your personal tax rate is. So you have a strategy, however, that is very unique and will be appropriate for people to consider if you are looking forward to, uh, if you're planning on lowering your income, your earned income at a very early age. So walk us through your strategy and why you say to start with a traditional IRA and walk us through your strategy of, of how to do that and, and how that works in an early retirement context. Sure, sure. Um, and yeah, this is this is one of the main reasons I started the blog. I, I love the math behind all of this stuff and I didn't see that there was, um, there's a lot of advice out there, but not a lot of it pertains to people that are uh, pursuing early financial independence, uh, you know, most advice is geared towards people that are, you know, working to 65 and doing the you know, standard thing. So, um, so yeah, this is uh, a chance for me to dive into the math from a financial independence perspective. Um, and yeah, before before diving into it, I just want to make the point that you know, a lot of people focus on trying to you know eke out another one percent over the index, and they you know, spend all their time picking stocks and doing all this stuff that may help them, but in most cases it won't. But then they ignore things like taxes and fees and transaction costs and like diversification and things like things that are in their control, they don't focus on, but then they try to make the money on things that they can't control. So that, so taxes are a huge deal. And if you can minimize them, then you're going to be able to you know, meet your goals much sooner. So I just wanted to get that out there before I dive into this. But um, so yeah, so so yeah, as you said, a lot of people do uh, contribute to a Roth IRA. Um, a lot of some people I've heard is because they they're they want to diversify they want to diversify the types of accounts that they're contributing to. So since a lot of people have a 401k, which is sort of like a traditional IRA and all the same uh, attributes that you mentioned. Um, they figure, well, I'll, I'll put some money into the Roth IRA, and then that way I have some tax-free withdrawals and I have some taxable withdrawals and things like that. But, but yeah, for someone who is pursuing financial independence, we're in a very unique situation where we're probably not going to make as much as we make right now. Um, I know for for me, I will never make this much because even if I get a job that pays this much, I'm not going to work. 100% of the year to get that wage. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, do 50% or just work a quarter of the year or whatever. So, so I know that I'm not going to uh, make as much as I do now. So that, that already is one benefit of going traditional over Roth because um, the tax that I'm paying now, 
on my last dollar of income is a lot greater than the tax that I would be paying when I'm withdrawing from that account. Um, so that is already a benefit. Um, I personally like to take benefits that are available instantly. So I would much rather have the tax break now and have more of my money working for me than uh, put it in a Roth and then get that nice tax-free withdrawal later on a lesser amount of total money just uh, because every dollar that I put in into a tr traditional IRA, I'm getting 100, 100 cents of value to buy the shares. So uh, as I mentioned before, and as you just said, if it's a Roth, I'm actually only putting 80 cents worth of shares in the Roth because I got taxed on the 20 cents before I before I could even buy the shares. So those that extra 20 cents worth of shares is just going to com compound and grow over you know the 30 plus years I have it in the account. And that is going to far exceed, I think, uh, you know, any downside to having to get taxed on that income later. But there are also uh, very nice loopholes that not many people take advantage of, but only because they don't live the sort of lifestyle that I plan on living. Um, so, so there's, there's a way to actually convert your traditional IRA and 401k into a Roth IRA. Um, it's, you can, do you want me to go into that now or do you want me to, yeah, are we going to come ahead. back to yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. No, go ahead. So yeah, so just to give you an idea of my strategy, I, I actually can't contribute to a traditional IRA because of my income limits, but my 401k acts, acts the, in a similar way. So say, so I currently max out my 401k, so that's 17,500 bucks a year that goes into my 401k. So that's pre-tax money, so that means that's not taxed, so that lowers my taxable income by 17,500. So, um, so already I'm saving thousands of dollars on tax that would have been taxed on that. Um, I then contribute that to my 401k and I will continue to max that out until I stop working. So at the point I stop working, I can roll that 401k directly into a traditional IRA because like I said, they're both similar types of accounts and when you leave your job, you can roll that over into a, a traditional IRA. So once it's there, um, I can gradually convert that to a Roth IRA. And the way that works is since you weren't taxed on the 401k or traditional IRA, you then have to pay tax when you convert a traditional to a Roth. But if, as Joshua mentioned, my expenses are going to be very low. My income is going to be non-existent. So, well, besides the the small amounts of uh, you know that I'm drawing down on you know getting some dividends and um, capital gains and things like that, but it's going to be below the threshold that I'm even going to be taxed. So it's possible to, I think I worked out my numbers. It's possible for me once I reach financial independence to transfer over nine thousand dollars a year from my traditional IRA to my Roth IRA and not get taxed on a single penny of that transfer. So then, since I have 30 years to transfer everything, by the time I reach standard retirement age of 59 and a half, I should have hopefully been able to convert my entire 401k, my entire traditional IRA that I funded back when my income was lower. I, I should be able to transfer all of that money into a Roth IRA 
and not pay a single tax on the conversion, which would then result in all of that money being completely tax-free because it's tax-free going in, it's been growing tax-free, and then it'll be in a Roth IRA when I withdraw it, so then it will be completely tax-free at withdrawal. Um, so that is a great way to have completely tax-free retirement money um, legally and not going to jail. Yeah, it's it's a and this is a strategy. Um, the only place that this strategy will like this strategy is an excellent strategy. The place that it works is if you're planning on either either if you're planning on having your income drop down to an extremely low level, or if it happens for you uh, by accident, maybe through a layoff, maybe through a medical condition, something like that. So this could either happen by plan, like you're doing, or it could also happen for people who are. Um, who are uh, just it happens through through circumstance, but this is really valuable because the the strategy that that you're using by taking your upfront deduction you can generally get depend and this, this is all income dependent so again this is not tax advice you've got to consult consult your own tax advisor who can walk you through the actual for your situation but conceptually if you can cut your income down through 401k and IRA contributions that'll help you to get into a lower bracket. It may help you to qualify for some more of the income-based either tax credits or uh, deductions that are available to you. Um, and by paying very, very low taxes now, and then like you said, dropping your income out, you can then do the conversion into a Roth. And by picking it up little by little, you can do this at a very, very low, uh, at a very, very low cost or nothing. And in addition to it, by having, by being in a, um, in a at a low income level. In uh, I don't know what we would call it retirement or you know financial independence under your plan, uh, if you can keep your if you can keep underneath the brackets if you can keep underneath the 15% bracket, you could conceivably get to a point where you pay zero dollars of income tax um, because you have a, a low amount of earned income. You, any dividends in taxable accounts uh, would be tax and capital gains can be at a zero percent level. Uh, and then also with doing this strategy and by carefully regulating how much income you pick up. Um, it can result in a very low tax bill, but this is not something that that uh, you know generally a CPA is going to point out to somebody. It's generally something that you need to understand it first, and then ask your CPA or, or yourself if you run them yourself how much income you can you can pick up. Um, I heard you say one thing. Let me give you uh, one quick interesting workaround, Brandon. I'm not, you may may or may not know, and obviously I doubt you want to disclose your income. But do you currently? So you said you currently participate in a 401k, but you're not able to participate in an IRA because of the income limits. I am able to participate in a Roth, not a traditional. Okay, so there's so generally you, you might want to consider doing what you're doing as far as going ahead and participating in a Roth now. But for people who are beyond the Roth contribution limits, um, one interesting um, thing that has, has existed for the last couple of years is anybody at any level of income can contribute to an IRA, period. It's just simply that you can't deduct those contributions on the front end um, if you're not... Um, you can't deduct those contributions if you're not if your income is underneath a certain amount. So anybody, even if your income is we'll call it half a million a year, you can this is relatively unimportant at half a million dollars a year, but you can do what's called a non-deductible uh, IRA, and then you can do a conversion into a Roth. So even though there are income limits for a Roth, if you're over those income limits, those income limits generally are let me see probably about uh, yeah north of one hundred and eighty thousand dollars basically, um, depending on on uh, depending on what you're, you're, whether you're married and all that stuff, 
but if your income is over that, you can still pursue some of the strategy and get into a Roth that way. Um, other kind of things I want to touch on, because hopefully we're not making this too confusing. It's a little bit difficult to do in an audio format. Even if you are pursuing a financial, early financial independence, it still is valuable to consider using these types of retirement accounts. And by having the money in the Roth, there are too many people, uh, the rules are generally with retirement accounts that you can't get the money out until you're at least 59 and a half years old without paying penalties on it. Well, there is a rule once you have money in the Roth IRA that after you've done the, the contribution and the money has been in there for at least five years, you can withdraw uh, your basis in a Roth IRA, which is the amount of money that you've contributed and paid tax on, which under our example would be a, a low amount of money, but it's happening each year. After five years, you can go ahead and withdraw those contributions and use them for current income, even if you're before the age of 59 and a half. Exactly, um, and that's a huge point. And that's because I, I get a lot of questions. It's like, wow, you're, you're putting so much money into your retirement accounts, but you can't get at it until you're 60, 59 and a half. And it's like, what are you going to, how are you going to fund the next, you know, 29 and a half years of your life, 28 and a half years of your life? And it's like exactly that strategy is what I plan on using. And um, I've seen it referred to other places as a Roth IRA conversion ladder. Um, and, and, and it's, and you're exactly right. So it, currently all that money is growing. So those say I only put in $5,000 into my 401k and I let it grow for 10 years, and now it's $10,000 or something. When I do the conversion, the whole 10000 acts as my contribution. So then I could potentially withdraw that entire amount after five years, um, which, is a, which is a great, nice little side benefit um, of even taking your gains and accessing them beforehand. So, so yeah, in, in my case, like I said, so assume that I – um, I'm going to once as soon as I achieve financial independence, I'm going to start converting, you know, $9,000, say, per year uh, from my traditional IRA to my Roth IRA. So that means after five years of doing that, then every year from then on out, if I continue doing that, uh, I'll be able to just withdraw $9,000 to live off of tax free every single year from that account uh, until I well, until whenever, until my money runs out, really. So, um, so yeah, so if you can come up with, as long as you have enough in your uh, non-retirement accounts to fund, you know, five plus years of uh, your lifestyle, then you can then sustain yourself potentially off the rest, um, paying little to no tax. So, so yeah, sure, I, if, if, I, if I needed to live off of 15000 a year, then I could I could transfer that amount every year and create my fifteen thousand dollar Roth IRA ladder and pay a little bit of tax on it. But but I think I can if I live on less of that, and then it makes sense to convert less, and then that way I'm not paying any tax. So yeah, and there, there there's some beauty beautiful things to the to the Roth is that because there's no um, if you have a lot of money in a Roth IRA and you're past the the ages where you can take it out. There's no if you have a huge portfolio inside of a of a Roth, you can take out a huge amount of dividends per year and 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 continue to have an effective tax rate of zero. So if you have a lot of money in it, you can you can do that. There are also some, there's one other one that I want to point out in addition to what you said that a lot of people simply aren't familiar with. There is a rule called the um, 72T distribution. Mm -hmm. So the IRS allows you one way to get money out of retirement accounts. 
uh, before the age of 59 and a half without um, paying penalties, and it's if you do it under what's called a series of substantially equal payments. Now, this is extremely dangerous for most people because most people aren't in a situation where they are, uh, there aren't, most people aren't in a situation where they have so much um, money that they can start taking money out of retirement accounts before 59 and a half. But in the context of an early retirement strategy like you're pursuing, there, if you have the money in a Roth IRA and you've got that contribution done starting at, you know, starting at really any age, if you take the money out under a table, an amortization table that is equal payments that are expected to last over your lifetime, then the money can come out before the 59 and a half deadline without paying the penalty taxes, um, and in this case, without paying any taxes. Now, the, the disadvantage, if you ever stop the money before 59 and a half, then you owe the penalty tax. And so this has to con continue for your lifetime. But in the right situation, for the right scenario, uh, for an early retiree looking to use these accounts for early, early tax savings and later tax savings, if the rules continue as they are now, there are some ways of, uh, of using the money. So Absolutely. That's a great point as well. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that just because... Uh, I'm hoping that maybe I won't even tap into tap into that money and just let it grow tax free. But yeah, that's an excellent way of knowing that you can get out that money without you know going through a Roth uh, conversion ladder or anything like that. So that's an excellent point. Yeah, and you also want to choose carefully what what assets you put into a Roth IRA. So generally, if you're going to have both capital gains assets and um, income assets, so capital gains assets usually stocks and income assets such as bonds, you would usually want to put your um, you'd usually want to put your income assets in inside of your retirement account. So you could have a scenario by using some of the things that you're pointing out. You could have a scenario where you have a taxable brokerage account. That holds your stock, your stock portfolio. If you're if you're going to have a, have a, a, a um, an asset allocation that's going to include both stocks and bonds, you could use the brokerage account to hold your stock portfolio. Which, with your low income, you can if you can keep under that 15% income limit, which is kind of the numbers where you're at with your low income, you can effectively have a zero percent capital gains rate and very favorable dividend rates. And then with your income investments inside of the Roth IRA. That would allow you to use, um, you know, corporate bonds instead of municipal bonds. Pick up a little bit of extra yield, and then you would be able to have that that income coming out of your portfolio on a tax-free basis by using your Roth. So there's a lot of little, lot of little useful tools here, which um, maybe we'll cover in more detail in the future. But for for the right for the right scenario, your strategy of start with IRAs and 401ks, especially if they're deductible now. And then pursue the conversion strategy. If your income is low in early retirement, then it's a it's a it's a powerful uh, powerful um, strategy. Yeah, and I just ran some numbers just to give people an idea because it's not you know you're not eating ramen on on this plan. Um, like I said, say assume you convert nine thousand a year, you, you can still live off of you know thirty plus thousand of dividends and long-term capital gains and still not be taxed on any part of that convert that nine thousand dollar conversion so we're we're still talking big numbers here like you could, you could have an amazing life you know living off of you know your thirty five thirty thirty grand worth of uh whatever your investments are returning and you're drawing down on them and dividends and things and still do you know nine thousand every year converting it into a roth so it's uh yeah the the tax code does seem to favor 
early retirees, which is quite nice. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the amount of money that you can actually save by implementing some of these strategies is so much more than you're going to get if you try to beat the markets or, you know, try to find the, the star mutual fund manager and things like that. So your time is much better spent, you know, learning the tax code and um, learning some of these little uh, tricks and loopholes and, uh, you know, taking advantage of these types of accounts. And uh, you're going to shed years and years off of your retirement and not get any more risk. Uh, whereas if you're just trying to, you know, pick stocks and beat the market, you, yeah, you may, you may knock a few years off, but you may add a couple of decades and uh, your risk is much higher. So, yeah, we want to use uh, every one of these things. So, um, and by the way, obviously, anytime you're talking about financial stuff, it probably doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anything. This is all situation dependent. So hopefully people can just use these ideas and then look at your situation and consult somebody who's qualified to, you know, qualified and properly credentialed to, to give specific advice. But maybe some of the, these ideas would help help each person to figure out their their specific um, their specific situation because neither of us is probably qualified to <laughs> give specific tax advice. Absolutely, yeah, that's always <laughs> worth mentioning. Um, but yeah, at least you have something to go and talk about <laughs> and ask about. Now, the next strategy of the three is you have what you call the ultimate retirement account, and this is a uh, type of retirement account that most people don't have a clue about. So walk us through a summary uh, of what you consider to be the ultimate retirement account and why. Okay, yeah. So as I said, I love taking it, taking advantage of tax advantages up front. I, you know, I know this is going to be probably the most I'm ever earning, uh, so I want to lower my tax burden now as much as I possibly can because then that means more of my money's working for me over a longer period of time. So, so yeah, the ultimate retirement account in my mind is the HSA, which is the health savings account. Um, Now, this is an account that people can contribute to if they are currently enrolled in what's called a high deductible health plan. Um, So uh, if you you aren't, uh, then you won't be able to get the tax advantages of contributing to this type of account. And and the contribution limits are much lower than things like 401k and uh, even IRAs. So you're not going to get too much bang for your buck, but um, it is definitely a, a good way to lower your taxable income uh, and getting lots of the benefits of both a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. So to, to explain how this works and why it is so beneficial to contribute to. So, so the idea is that you can contribute, I think it's 3250 uh, in 2013, I think the contribution limit is. So you can contribute up to 3250 a year and that is pre-tax so you're not taxed on that income and you can then invest it uh depending on the the people that are holding your HSA um some have better investment options others just have you know like a savings account or equivalent um mine I can you know invest in broad based broad index funds, stock market index funds, things like that, that have low expense ratio. So I treat it just as another investment account. So the idea is you can put this money in and then use that money for medical expenses without paying any tax on it. So that means that, you know, if you spend 200 bucks at the doctor, that $200 is completely tax free. So already you're, you're better off because 
no doubt you're going to have something, some medical expense in your life that you're going to have to pay for. And it's much better to just pay for it with tax-free money than it is to pay for uh, after-tax money. So that's the that's the that's the main idea behind the account is to allow you to pay for healthcare expenses uh, with your own money and uh, not pay any tax on that money. So my idea is though uh, there's a little it's not it's not a loophole I guess but it it's just part of the rules. You don't have to take out that money as soon as you pay for the, the health expense. So, for instance, say, like I said, I had a $200 doctor bill. So, yes, I could take that $200 out of my HSA, hand it to the doctor, and then that's it. Uh, I just used tax-free money to pay for it, which is great. Alternatively, I could pay for that with $200 out of my wallet. That's, you know, I've already been taxed on. It's just my cash. And then I can leave that $200 sitting in my HSA for the next 40 years to grow tax-free, and then I could take out that $200 tax-free. So this is another way that I'm saving for my early retirement. Um, so it's sort of acting to me like a combination of a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, and an early retirement IRA, because every time I spend money at a doctor, I'll keep track of it that money will continue to grow tax-free and then say when I'm 49, I'm like, oh man, I really need 200 bucks. Then I can take that out tax-free and keep all of the investment earnings that have accumulated over those 19 years and those will continue to grow. So it's like, um, so yeah, it's, it's like I've been calling it the super IRA. Um, and the best thing is, so so you're saying so you may be saying like oh well that's great but what if I don't have you know thirty two hundred dollars worth of medical expenses before you know I turn sixty or something the good news is that that account then just converts into a traditional IRA so at that point you could then you know do the conversion ladder that I already talked about or you could just you know pay tax on the withdrawals just as you would a traditional IRA. Um, and that, at that case, at that point in your life, you may not, you know, have to pay any tax just based on how much income you are. You actually need to to survive. So, um, so yeah, at the worst case, it's just a traditional IRA. At the best case, it's a super Roth where it's, you know, a traditional IRA because you don't pay tax going in. It's like a Roth IRA because you don't pay tax going out and it grows tax free and you can withdraw some of the money prior to standard retirement age so you can use it in early retirement as well. So that's, I hope that summarized it. I, uh, my post on it's probably a lot more eloquent, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this should uh, give people just a teaser that the HSA for, for early retirees is, and I've pointed people a couple times to your article because it, it does do a good job of kind of explaining it. Um, most people aren't, aren't so familiar with HSAs and most people don't know about the fact that they can take the money out and spend it on any expense after the age of 65. So now the pay, you're going to go ahead and pay income taxes, ordinary income tax rates after that time. But that's identical to a traditional IRA. So, but most people aren't familiar with that. And people often kind of get these, these confused with flexible spending accounts, FSAs, which have to be spent each year. Um, they don't realize that the money can accumulate inside of the HSA. 
Um, my encouragement is, is this is a good way of stacking functions for early retirees. You're likely going to, uh, uh, you know, legally now with the uh, um, changes in U.S. American uh, healthcare law, um, you're going to need to maintain some health insurance. And by the way, one caveat, it's a little unclear at the moment what, with the implementation of the, uh, of the um, whether you call it Obamacare or Patient Protection Act, Affordable Care Act, whatever it is, with the changes in health insurance, the future of high-deductible health plans is a little bit uncertain, and then the future of health savings accounts is a little bit uncertain. doesn't seem like uh, anything alarming, but keep it, if you're listening to this a year, two, three years from now, which is July of 2013, check the current rules because this may, may have changed um, since then. But the, the flexible spending accounts, people, you know, you have to spend those each year or you lose the money. That doesn't occur with the health savings account. So the health savings account gives you an upfront deduction, and one way to add to your your case for a super retirement account, unlike contributions to IRAs and Roth IRAs, um, my understanding is that health savings accounts are not subject to Medicare and Social Security taxes. Absolutely. So in, in a traditional IRA, although you don't pay current income taxes, your money you still have to pay Medicare and Social Security taxes on the income. With a health savings account, you don't. So that's an extra savings. The money can accumulate. Most people aren't familiar with how much, how how liberal the definitions of what health expenses are. So check the IRS website. There is a, um, um, I'll put a link to it. I think it's publication 502, where you can check the uh, the IRS um, lists of what it, what qualifies as, as an expense. But even things like the ones that always interest me is I wear contacts, contacts and contact solution uh, are qualified. Um, some prescription drugs, it used to be that over-the-counter drugs were covered. That rule changed a few years ago. Even things that maybe traditional health insurance doesn't quite cover fully, things like chiropractic adjustments, um, other types of, of, of alternative medicine may be covered. Check the IRS rules. So there's a lot of flexibility to it, plus the fact that people are paying with your own dollars allows you sometimes with your health care provider to to negotiate a, a discount, a, health, a cash payment discount that doesn't necessarily go through the insurance claim, and sometimes you get better deals because of that. So when you start stacking current expenses, current things um, uh, on top of your ideas about delaying the distribution and also taking it as retirement, it definitely bears looking into, and it's one of those valuable places that people can stack their benefits um, if they're able to arrange their financial affairs in such a way that they can make the contributions. Yeah, and you made some great points about the FSA because that I actually just got an email from a reader recently, and he said, you know, I got I got this money. I'm about to dive into you know my health savings account, but I was reading the fine print, and it said that you need to use this before the end of the year, or else you'll lose it. And I hurried up and emailed him really quickly, and I was like, no, no, that's an FSA. That's a flexible spending account, and you will use it, lose it. So. Definitely do not uh, uh, put all the put all your money in there if you don't think you're going to spend it within a year. So, uh, and then he wrote back and he's like, "Yep, that was an FSA, and it looks like I don't have an HSA to contribute to." So, um, so that's very very important um, because yeah, you will lose the money out of a flexible spending account. So, uh, make sure you check that first. And and your your uh, Medicare. Uh, that was also a great point. That'll save you another, what is it, 7.5% or 7.65% or something uh, that you would have had to pay on that uh, that money. Uh, so that's definitely another excellent benefit. Yeah. And to your reader there, um, 
just a suggestion to, to listeners. An HSA is generally, the HSA account is something that generally most places you'll want to set up yourself. So your employer may offer you a high deductible health plan, which is HSA qualified. If that's the case, they may not, generally an employer doesn't say, here's who you have to use for your health savings account. You can go out and research and find a provider that will do it um, outside of that. So if you have a, a health insurance plan that's a high deductible health plan that's HSA qualified, you can still open the account. It generally won't be something that is deducted off of your, your pay stub. So speak with your human resources department and ask about that. Number two, for early retirees who don't have an employer, this is still possible with an individually owned high deductible health plan. So as long as your plan is HSA qualified and your health insurance provider will let you know that, you can use an HSA bank or um, generally they're offered by banks or sometimes brokerage companies and you can research um, what would be the best provider, um, then uh, you can open this, this type of account on your own. There are a lot of acronyms in health insurance. Don't get them confused. There's HSAs, which is health savings account, FSAs, which is flexible spending accounts, HRAs, which are health reimbursement accounts. Each of them is unique and has their own, um, their own um, uh, advantages and disadvantages and their own implementation. But hopefully this will give people some, uh, a little bit of information to talk to their HR people or, or research further on their own. Um, anything else on the HSA, Brandon, before we go on to the last thing I want to talk about? No, no, I think, uh, yeah, I think that covers it. And then, yeah, those are all really good points that you made. Um, and yeah, as always, take a look and see if it'll work out for you. Um, um, but yeah, there's, it could be very, very beneficial for people that are, uh, planning on early retirement and are just trying to minimize their taxes, uh, in the last few years that they're working. So. Absolutely. Free Ivy League degree. Right, yep. Talk me through this. What are you doing? Yeah, I'm currently one class and a thesis away from getting a master's degree. Um, this is something, you know, I... I What's your degree? I'm sorry? What's your degree going to be in? It's Yeah, so it's, it's a complete 180 from what my computer science bachelor's of uh, science degree was. Um, so the... the uh, I have to say first, uh, first I'm working full-time, so this, there's only... At the institution that I work at, um, there's only a few programs that you can do part time, and this is one of them. So I'm getting my Master's of Arts in Liberal Studies, um, but my thesis is actually going to be on. Uh, I actually just was emailing my thesis advisor this morning about my proposal, um, but it should be something that would be uh, interesting to both of our listeners. So hopefully it'll result in some pretty cool research, but. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a Master of Arts. Uh, I've always thought I would go back to school. I've always wanted to try grad school, and um, but there's no way I would want to pay for it because I currently don't need any other qualifications to reach financial independence. So there's no way I was going to set myself back, you know, 50k just to just to go back to school for a bit. But um, but yeah, no, we uh, my wife and I moved to an area where there's uh excellent university close by. Um, and I decided at the time I was working remotely for a, uh, financial company. And, uh, so yeah, once we moved close to, uh, the Ivy league school, I was like, well, let me, let me look into it, see if there's any programs that, you know, I could take, uh, you know, could complete for free as an employee. So, uh, there was, and it sounded interesting and something that I, hadn't done before. Cause like I said, I, I was computer science. So I was just doing math and 
science and programming pretty much my entire undergraduate career. Um, whereas this one's much different, lots of reading and paper writing and discussions and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, I thought it'd be worth it. So I, uh, I decided I was going to go for it. And so I just kept an eye on the, the job boards for the school. And then as soon as one popped up, that was, uh, what I do. Um, I applied, got it. And yeah, I'm less than a year from graduation, which feels great because it's been doing it part time is quite difficult. Uh, you know, working full time and then trying to, trying to do papers and read tons of books and all this sort of stuff. Um, and since I'm doing it part time, it took over, I think it'll be just under three years that I'll complete it in. Um, and I have less than a year left, so I feel like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And yeah, it's been, it's been great. And I highly recommend it for anyone that wants to go back to school. Um, I think that people could even get undergrad degrees, um, by, by going this route. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure on that, but I think that that's the case, but, uh, you can definitely get a graduate degree and yeah, it's, uh, it's been very fulfilling. So. Yeah, this can be, and the reason I want to talk about this is there's education is many people's one of their major expenses, and people are very passionate about education. Some people passionately believe that, you know, without formal education, you, your your future is doomed. And some people very passionately believe that if you go down the route of formal education, your future is doomed. So <laughs> there are a lot of strong feelings on it. But, and, and, you know, you and I don't know what's right for people, but if people are interested in formal education, the approach that you're pursuing is one that can add a lot of benefits. And so I've thought a little bit about some different ways that, that you can leverage, leverage these. And again, this, this, there may just be a couple ideas in here for, for people to, um, you know, to pursue on their own and see what's right for them. Number one is that exactly like you said, many universities, if you're working for that university, um, will give you either discounted or completely free um, access to their classes. Usually it's a cap of a certain number of classes. And I think that could be done at undergraduate levels, graduate degrees, uh, and even, you know, uh, master's and PhD type of work. And so the other thing is that by working at a university, a lot of times the university may be a very enjoyable work environment. So rather than somebody working at a job that they don't like, uh, that's very stressful, and then going out and taking on student loans to pay for a degree, it may be worth looking into um, working at a university and then using the discounted courses as a way to do that. And by lowering your taxable income, it's potential, it, there's, it's possible that you may be able to simply uh, have a lower tax bill if you're earning a higher income and you go to a lower income rather than having to pay for your income with taxable dollars, you know, you're getting a valuable fringe benefit. Um, a lot of times, also, universities offer generous benefit programs that go beyond their salaries. So universities sometimes offer very, gen ben excuse me, very generous retirement programs with generous matches, generous health insurance. So if you look at the total value of a compensation package and include into it the dollars of your degree, that what you would be paying for the classes if you were paying for them out of pocket, it could be compelling. Those are all excellent, excellent points, and that was some of the uh, things that I had to consider because, I, like I said, I was working for a big city uh, financial company. I was working remotely, so I had a lot of flexibility as far as that's concerned, um, and I was making good money, um, and, and it was a decrease to go and work for the university, but if you add up all the benefits, like the 
tons of paid time off, um, lots of holidays, great, you know, retirement benefits and health care and things like that. And if you do add all those up, it is pretty similar to what I was actually earning as a, you know, as a pay by the hour consultant, uh, which is pretty impressive. And then when you factor in the educational benefits, then it totally blows it out, out of the water because uh, right now, I think, I think it costs uh, over six grand per course and I'm taking four courses per year. So that's another 24 grand of value that I'm extracting from being employed by the university. And as you said, it's much lower stress. It's just a totally different environment from court, corporate America. Like it's uh, uh, much more rewarding as well. I'm, you know, I'm helping some of the smartest kids in the country get a degree rather than helping the bottom line of some financial company. Um, and I, I actually enjoy my work a lot more. And yeah, it's just it's great getting a salary uh, and going to school. And I, most of my classmates are paying, you know, 50 grand a year and not getting paid. So. Yeah. And in addition, uh, for early retirees, I think there's some other benefits. I'm familiar with some friends of mine who uh, worked at a university and but also by being students and working at the university had access to some university housing and that housing is provided they needed to pay for it but is provided at a discounted rate or they can negotiate that as part of their compensation package and so if you have university housing that can be that can help when people are looking to decrease their expenses substantially because it generally would be less than maybe what you could find you know in the miles around a university in addition, you know, again, stacking functions, if you are living and working on a university campus where you're getting your education, it's probable that you can lower some of your other expenses, such as transportation expenses. Um, you know, most, many college students will ride a bike to, to class, and so now instead of having to ride a bike 10 miles across town for a commute, you, you, can, you can simply walk to, walk to your job. That lowers your expenses. Also, things like entertainment in the university system their college students generally aren't the most affluent. There's plenty of free and cheap entertainment that's really interesting that would allow people to live an extremely enjoyable but lower cost lifestyle. And people forget about this a lot of times um, that it's not just something that you can only do at 20 years old. Some friends of mine, you know, were doing it in their mid 30s with kids and still able to live in. They weren't living in the dorms with the 18 year old freshman students, but they were living in on campus housing, working there. Um, both couples worked, excuse me, both spouses worked at the university. Um, and that's a, it's a compelling situation financially if you can start to stack those functions. So there's a way to get a degree and get an expensive education without necessarily going the retail route. And, uh, just to go into details for a second, my, my, my friends who were, who were um, both spouses were working at the university, earning the income. When you take on the fact that you have a couple of kids, you're living and working on a university campus where you have entertainment, low transportation costs, low housing expenses. When you take the kids and you take relatively low income but a lot of value for the income and you start to run that through the tax code, you can qualify for the child deductions, you can qualify with a generous 401 uh, 401k or 403b, as the case may be, retirement accounts. You can qualify for refundable earned income tax credits. I mean, it's a, a it's a substantial, substantial um, financial gain for the right person in the right circumstances. Absolutely, and you forgot one of the best things: the the university library. There's just um, you could just keep yourself entertained for 
decades with the amount of stuff that's in there. You they got DVDs, CDs, they got tons of books and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's a lot of fringe benefits of working for a university that um could yeah, make it very worthwhile for someone that's thinking about going back to school. And uh and yeah, just in case anybody questions anything, I I use 401k synonymously with 403b, but I actually have a 403b since it's a uh, non-profit uh, entity yeah. that I work for. But yeah, same same type of thing, same account pretty much. But yeah, just in case some of your more uh, <laughs> your listeners that are listening very closely, then I don't want anybody to think <laughs> that, hey, how's he have a 401k if he works at a university? But That's true. <laughs> and then two other things, like just to add on to that, two other ideas that I've had, and if you have any others. The nice thing about universities is many times universities have programs of either whether it's study or employment where they're working together with other schools that are in other places in the country or other places in the world. And so if somebody has an interest in world travel, um, it may be that by pursuing their education at a foreign university, uh, when I was younger I considered studying at um, uh, University of Hong Kong because I was interested in, in living there. I didn't pursue it, but it could be that by, by being a student in an international context, you can take some of those things that you talked about earlier with travel, you can combine it with earning an income and combine it with educational value, and now you've stacked so many functions on top of each other that you've got a really powerful, uh, really powerful scenario. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Uh, studying abroad in Glasgow was one of the uh, yeah the best years of my life, and yeah, met my wife over there and completely changed my outlook on everything. So yeah, that could that could be a very fun and rewarding thing to do. Yeah. And then the last one, and then we'll wrap up, is that just to remind people that a lot of times this isn't necessarily just limited to university level. Many times if somebody's looking for a way, whether it's um, private school, many private schools for uh, elementary and high school students offer similar programs. And it could be that if uh, if somebody, this is some, uh, something that my parents were able to do, um, or that my parents did that allowed uh, me and some of my siblings to attend a private school, it could be that instead of two parents working at higher income jobs, it could be that with one of the parents um, switching to working at a, a either a university so that their children could go through college, or whether it's it's because this is also a strategy for kids that if you have children that you need to put through university, the same type of program can apply to parents and, and their children's students, or at high schools you can get a significant discount up to 100% on tuition. And if that lowers your, again, if that lowers your tax bill because you have a lower earned income, if that allows for you to uh, pursue some of these other strategies that we're talking about, um, consider it and consider if some of these strategies might help help you to achieve um, achieve your financial goals sooner. So Definitely. Great advice. Brandon, what did we miss? Anything else you want to add? That's about it as far as what I had on my list of things to talk about. Anything that we missed or any any? No, that things? was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, that was, like I said, I was looking forward to being on the other side of it, and it was a lot a lot easier. So uh, you did a fantastic job, and uh, I, no, I had a great time. So I appreciate you letting me uh, come on and talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, well, keep it up. And I, I like to encourage people to um, sign up and read your blog and listen to your podcast. The things that's interesting that I like is that um, you're not there. You haven't achieved it, right? So you're not you're not technically financially independent yet. That's correct, yep. Uh, you're working down the path. And a lot of times, if people are interested in, a goal, in goals similar to yours, 
you know, you're going to develop a community around your site and around your blog and podcast of people that are pursuing similar goals. And that can be really encouraging is for those who are interested in those types of goals to to talk with one another, to encourage one another, to brainstorm ideas. And um, it's also fun sometimes to, to see people working towards their goals and just simply follow them on the path. Uh, I can guarantee probably with a pretty, I feel pretty confident that your plans and your ideas are going to change and you're going to find out that some of the stuff that you've probably even said in this podcast doesn't work for you three years from now, but you're going to find some new stuff that does work for you and that's okay. Um, You're probably more likely, you're more likely to achieve your goals because you're working towards something rather than just simply floating on by. So keep up the the good work on your blog and and on your show and and, uh, I promise I'm not following you around interviewing all of your guests. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. like I said, I picked them for a reason because I really like uh, like reading their stuff and wanted to hear more from them. So, hey, if even if you if even if you take them all, I'll still be listening because, like I said, I I'll like to hear anything else that they have to say about it. And you'll probably ask different questions than I did. So yeah, no, uh, feel free to go for it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm I'm trying to get uh, one is available. I'm trying to get um, Jim Collins from Jail Collins NH on here because I want to talk about. I love some of his writings on real estate, and I think he he has a good way of talking through that in some of his articles he's written. So I'm hoping to get him on here to talk about uh, about that. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm actually uh, I'm actually planning on just having a call with them right after this. Not not a podcast or anything. So uh, I'll put in a good word, and uh, I'm sure he'll be on your show in no time. But uh, I know he's busy over the next few months uh, traveling and yeah, Ecuador said. and stuff. But uh, but yeah, now I'm actually. Uh, I sometimes help him with some of the more technical stuff of his blog, uh, the computer, <laughs> the computer side of it. So uh, I'm uh, I'm gonna call him right after I finish speaking to you and no awesome. no doubt look into something computer related. So I'll be sure to mention that I had a good time. Awesome. Well, that has been another episode of the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Today, talking with Brandon, the mad scientist. All the links to these articles that we've referenced will be in the show notes, and I'll put links to your podcast uh, on iTunes and to your website. I encourage people to get over and, uh, and enjoy some of your content. If you have questions or anything that you'd like uh, to talk with Brandon again in the future, put notes in the, in the comments section, and who knows, maybe we'll have him back in a year or two and see how he's doing on his, uh, on his journey. So thanks again, Brandon. Hey, my pleasure, Joshua. Take care. All right, bye.